This is a Drug Truth Network retrospective. Doing the garden, digging the weeds, who could ask for more? Let us investigate the century of lies. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. Send me a postcard, drop me a line. Dean at DrugTruth.net Indicate precisely what you mean to say You're sincerely wasting away Celebrating 64 broadcast affiliates and five years over the airwaves Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 This is a Drug Truth Network retrospective The Cultural Baggage Edition my name is Dean Becker, host of the Drug Truth Network program, Century of Lies, Cultural Baggage, and the daily 420 Drug War News. Welcome to this retrospective. Five years we've been battling the forces of evil. Five years we've been disseminating the unvarnished truth about the drug war. Five years we've been challenging the experts of government, science, medicine, and the clergy to defend this policy of eternal drug war against our own people. Five years these drug warriors have stood their ground with silence. Five years they have instigated and escalated their jihad of drug prohibition through your silence as well. Today we take a look and a listen back over the last five years of the Drug Truth Network. If you caught this week's Century of Lies program, you heard us take us up through the time frame of January 2004 with Miss Valerie Corral. Let's go now to February of 04. And George Mortorano, a man now in his 24th year behind federal prison bars for possession of marijuana. Yes, sir, George, if you will, tell my listeners how you wound up where you are. Well, basically, I put myself here. Uh, I'm a nonviolent, I'm the longest nonviolent first offender serving time in federal prison, in the federal prison system, possibly the United States. And, uh, I have no other prison record at all. Actually, my years of criminal activity were less than three uh, for marijuana. And uh, I pled guilty to the defense, assuming that I was going to get ten years. But at the time, there was a lot of political rhetoric going on in Philadelphia, and uh, I fell right into it. And uh, instead of getting the ten years, I was uh, sentenced to life, no parole, the fourth person in America at that time, and the first person ever in the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, upon getting that sentence, after spending a year in uh, in solitary, uh, getting the the sentence, I thought that uh, I would finally go to an institution uh, where I would be in population. Instead, I was sent to the the most severe uh, prison in America. The federal prison had the offer, and that was Marion. And uh, I wrote a little bit about that. It's called the War of Words and Walls. Just and to, uh, I'll just, just read you or read the first few sentences. It was for Professor Ian Ross, who writes a lot on prison uh, penology in America. <clears throat> and I quote: "No one knows what goes on in the body under the skin when sentenced to die within walls. I know. I was sentenced twice, twice to come home in a body bag." <clears throat> Now, Dean, the reason I was sentenced twice is because I had the sentence vacated in 1986. But I was unfortunate 
to uh, get in front of the same judge. And his AKA was hanging, hanging high Hannum, who is now deceased. Now, and also there was a lot of uh, media on him at the time due to the fact that uh, while I was uh, fighting for my life in court, my then lawyer, uh, Robert Simone, was uh, indicted for, by the IRS and facing 20 years in prison. Well, I didn't know uh, during his trial his main character witness was going to be my judge. And it was first time done in history that the judge actually walked in through the door where prisoners were escorted into the courtroom in his robes and took the stand as the main character witness. <clears throat> Simone gets found not guilty, but the, pre the press had a field day with the judge and the Simone relationship. And... Uh, Sixty days later, instead of getting the ten years because of the bad publicity, I get life, no parole. There was a, a clandestine deal made. As a writer, I did a lot, a lot of research. I haven't written my life story yet. I've written many other books. But there was a clandestine deal made in the shadows where I was supposed to get the life and hire a certain lawyer, and the life was supposed to come down to maybe 20, 30 years. This was fine because if that was the, was the case, if my sentence was ever reduced, which it wasn't, I would have been out by now. But the, see, when they made the deal in the, in the shadows, no one told me. And the certain lawyer I was supposed to hire, I didn't hire. I hired a, a lawyer out of New York, Jerry Shargell, a very uh, prominent appeals lawyer there, still practicing. And uh, the judge, I guess, thought I double-crossed the deal because the deal was never told to me. And here I sit after, uh, you said 21 years, it's going on 22 years. And, yeah. uh, George, I'm not bitter, but all I want uh, is freedom because if you were to, <clears throat> I pled guilty to the whole indictment, figure I was going to get 10 years. Now, if you were to add up every gram of drug, every gram, not ounce, pound, every gram of marijuana in my case, my sentence would, under the new law, which is much more stringent, I would get 15 to 22 years. Why well, I did that. And this is why we believe group.com is there fighting for my freedom. You say you got life without parole, but is my understanding you pled guilty. How yeah. in the hell can that happen? Well, there, you answered, you answered the, the question, which I'm, I'm the facts that I'm stating. Why would I do it if I wasn't told something? Yeah. And uh, all these years, I've been trying to get this lawyer to become clean, this uh, Simone. Incidentally, he gets indicted again. I believe in 92, he gets indicted for RICO. Uh, and one of his, two of his counts were that he, he took $30,000 that was owed to me from a pot bill and never told me, pocketed it. So why would he want me on going to trial but that would have been revealed because the guy he took the 30000 off of was an unindicted co-conspirator. Also, he was indicted for a conspiracy to murder my father. George's situation is not unique. Many prisoners sit behind bars because of this jihad against marijuana. Yet the drug czar and his minions tour the country saying very few people are put behind bars for marijuana. This, despite the fact they arrest some 785,000 of us each year for having baggies of pot in our pockets. 
just yesterday, the Bureau of Justice Statistics released some information that indicates almost one out of eight drug prisoners are behind bars for marijuana. Please realize you pay the drug czar's salary to lie to you. Next up, we tune into the May 25, 2004 Cultural Baggage and our visit with the Michigan Congressman John Conyers. Each year here in the U.S., we arrest 1.6 million people for drugs, and the predominant amount of those arrested are blacks, then Hispanics, and then whites, you know, at least in uh, correlation to their representation. But many have said the drug war is a continuation of slavery or the poll tax, or it's just the best means available to continue white supremacy in this modern era. And your thoughts on that, sir? Well... <clears throat> The, the fact that there's a racial factor to who's arrested, locked up, gets the longest sentences, the most death penalties, the, the most brutality, the, the most abusive process, uh, it's cl clearly race plays a role in it. I, I can't deny that. The question is, how are we going to marshal the forces to do something uh, about it against those who say, well, so what? They did something wrong, lock them up and throw the key away. I, I don't think that's a, any longer an acceptable approach toward uh, criminal justice problems. Now, just as in New Jersey, they had this modus operandi, and though they said the practice of racial profiling was not being used, their method was actually found to be institutionalized and taught around this nation. And can we not see a, a correlation another type of bigotry being practiced in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay? Well, you know, sometimes it's religiously motivated, sometimes it's ethnically motivated, sometimes it's motivated against uh, nationality. Uh, we need some sociologists and psychiatrists to help us out. Next up, we jump forward to June 15th of 2004, to the man who sends more people to prison than anyone in Red China or Korea, the district attorney of the Gulag filling station of planet Earth, Harris County, Houston, Texas, Mr. Chuck Rosenthal. I've heard people say that 30 to 60 to 70 percent of those in prison are there, perhaps not as drug users, but for stealing or other crimes committed to support their drug habits. Would there not be a, a a better way of handling the situation than locking up all these nonviolent users? Um, well, I'm I'm certainly uh, willing to look at those kind of alternatives. But you know that when the only tool that you have uh, to work with is a hammer, you tend to look at every problem as being a nail. I mean, there's not a whole lot that that we can do. I'm again, I'm not a a, a sociologist, and I my uh, duties are pretty strictly drawn by the Constitution of the state of Texas and by the um, the statutes that set up my office. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people in prison for nonviolent offenses, but they are also uh, being paroled out at a uh, tremendously high rate. And I think that's why the numbers of our at our office are are tremendously up this year alone. Um, it's it's I think overall we're up something like 11% in filings over last year. Now, either the police are catching more people or there are a lot of people who, who get out of prison and reoffend so that, that we're catching them back again. 
or something's happening because everybody's telling me that crime's going down in Harris County, but I see our our uh, work uh, rate going up tremendously. Each year in the U.S., there's about 700,000, 700,000 plus people arrested for marijuana. And I know here in, in Houston, we have thousands, if not perhaps 10 or 20,000 arrested each year for marijuana. Is that not a, I, I don't know, a waste of our taxpayer dollar? No. I mean, uh, if, uh, if, <laughs> All we do is enforce the law. Yes. Uh, and uh, if people people in Texas decide that they don't want to make uh, the use of marijuana against the law, that's fine with me. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Uh, but, uh, no, if someone violates the law then and they are caught by the police, then we make a de- decision as to whether or not there's enough evidence to prosecute them. And if there is, we file charges on them. It's kind of as simple as that bit I got here from the Austin American Statesman. Again, quote, one out of five new prisoners added to the nation's prison system during the 1990s was added in Texas. And my question, sir, is that Harris County leads Texas. Texas leads the world in the incarceration of its people. And uh, well, I don't know about that. It leads the world? Well, sir, more so than Russia, Red China, or Korea. Yes, sir. I'd have to take your word for that. I have no idea about that. Well, to, to paraphrase it, uh, we have we represent five percent of the world's population, yet we have twenty-five percent of the world's prisoners uh, in this country. Um, Wait a minute. Finish your, finish your question. Okay. Well, I, I guess the the point I wanted to make, sir, is that in te- in that Texas does lead this effort, and and Houston leads Texas. Perhaps we could reconsider. So should the people contact their representatives if they feel this policy is? Uh, you know, wrong, so that you can change your uh, regard for the situation. Well, that's that's what uh, a republic is all about, is people being represented by their representatives, and if they don't like the law, to change the law. Despite the fact that Houston and Harris County are running out of money for their parks, for health facilities, and for other metropolitan needs, apparently they're going to find $250 million dollars to build another jail so they can double their capacity to hold nonviolent drug offenders. Next up, a reach back to July 6th of 2004 and our visit with Rich Watkins, Senior Warden of the Holiday Prison Unit in Texas. I consider you to be a man who, who tries to create respect, who probably uh, garners a lot of respect for the work that you do. You know, the, the stories come out uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other papers comparing some of the abuses in these Iraqi prisons with what goes on in the uh, many of the uh, prisons here in the US uh, there is some validity to those comparisons is there not well I think in recent actual cases where there have been video accounts of some of the abuses that have occurred even in the Houston area we have to recognize that that that's the truth but I would suspect that uh, the rampant abuse that's been portrayed uh, all too often is in fact not the truth prison of course is not a nice place to be uh... the facility that i work at uh... we're very proud of the kind of things that we do there and you mentioned respect that's kind of the basis from which we work we require staff to respect themselves and we require staff to respect the offenders thereby uh... we can have an environment where we can work with the offenders to help them alter their behavior but uh... i just don't think that the kinds of of uh... 
vast numbers of, of, of very hostile accounts that people might believe exist, uh, do exist. I, I, I know pretty much what happens in Texas because, you know, we've been involved in this process for, for, for over 20 years now. And we know how the courts came in and, and required the state to revamp, uh, the prison system here. Sure. Uh, there are very serious consequences for those staff members who, who don't uh, abide by the law and and do those things in a professional manner. And they cut back on the funds for treatment just this year, did they not? That's true. That's that's very unfortunate, Dean, because you know the, the reality is is that we depending upon who you talk to, we have anywhere from 142 to 162,000 uh people incarcerated in prisons in Texas. Those folks are not going to just die and disappear off the face of Texas. They are going to come back to your neighborhood and my neighborhood all over this state. So here we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not providing the kind of atmosphere that will help those folks uh, deal with their uh, uh, their situations, uh, uh, help them to alter their behavior, and to become, come back to our neighborhoods as, as good, viable citizens. According to the statistics and the rate of growth, we're going to have to build more prisons again next year. Well, there has to be a better way. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're looking at the competition between dollars to incarcerate somebody and dollars to educate our most valuable assets, our children. And, you know, the special session, you know, whether it was going to be successful or was successful, that's debatable. But, but the issue here is that uh, I can recall a time that we grew from uh, less than 12,000 offenders in, to, to over 140,000. I mean, we're going in the wrong direction there. Those of us who are taxpayers, I don't think we can bear that burden just from an economic point of view. But I don't think our society can afford to continue to do that. Well, there's apparently a push you know, in Austin, uh, to not fund any more new construction. So what has happened here apparently is that to preclude new construction in any immediate uh, uh, period of time, beds are being added to existing prison units, which further uh, provide for additional crowdings. Yes, sir. Uh in, in regards to marijuana, I'm sure that's a, those in, in prison, uh, many of them are there through use of marijuana or having got caught while on probation or parole using marijuana. Uh, let's talk about that. Are, uh, are you aware of a, a number that, that, that come into prison for that reason? There are a significant number of uh, people who are incarcerated who have been involved in uh in drugs marijuana use as well as cocaine and others um there's some real horror stories uh but i think uh, uh the reality is is that uh you know it's incumbent upon us to recognize and to keep accurate statistics on who we have incarcerated why they're there and uh that should give us a clue on what we can do to try to help these folks Prohibition. It it has uh, an 89-year history. It certainly didn't work with alcohol. Why can we not recognize the need for change at this time? Unfortunately, so much about the criminal justice system is emotional. It's not based upon fact or reason. 
is based upon hearsay perceptions. You know, I get asked often, is my prison like uh, the prison that was in Oz? Well, no, that prison doesn't exist, I don't think, anywhere in the state of Texas. But there are those perceptions out there. And as long as there are perceptions based upon uh, beliefs and not facts, we're going to have some unrealistic kinds of situations. So um, here, that's a big challenge. I hope you've enjoyed this retrospective and are listening to a couple of the guests among the many hundreds who've been on the cultural baggage, Century of Lies, and 420 Drug War News over the past five years. And we have just enough time to hear from a few of our Drug Truth Network reporters. First up, Mr. Terry Nelson, a man who spent 34 years working for the U.S. government as a customs, border, and air interdiction officer. He retired last year as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. This is Terry Nelson speaking on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. To a teenager, the words, do not, you cannot, and I forbid, often cause the opposite behavior from the original intent. As if presented with a dare by the adult society, juveniles are curious, eager to find out for themselves. Fueled by a culture of virtual reality, extreme experiences, and instant gratification, teens feel compelled to try for themselves. Resulting dangers and punishments do not factor into the decision process. For teens, drug and alcohol top the list. Both are illegal and easy to acquire. As adults, we all know that everyone makes mistakes. As a parent, we must let them make mistakes while trying to protect them so that they can make a good choice instead of bad choices later in life when penalties are more severe. Not so easy for a parent to do in a society that prefers to punish instead of educate. The government's response has been to criminalize certain teen behavior and deal with it by punitive and criminal punishments. The results are 1.9 million juveniles have been arrested for drug possession in the past 10 years. If one of these kids was yours, then you personally know the pain associated with the event. This does not have to go on, and other parents do not have to feel this pain. Lectures don't work, and after-the-fact lectures fall on deaf ears. In the criminal justice system, even if the juvenile offender is lucky enough to be given community service, he or she is lumped in with other violators. Associating with other violators results in knowing others who sympathize with the offender, and thus it minimizes the punishment. The drug prohibition policy has placed the dispensing of recreational drugs in the hands of drug cartels, criminal gangs, and street thugs. Violence associated with this distribution network has increased annually since the beginning of drug prohibition. What makes more sense is to end drug prohibition and establish a system of regulation and control to be able to protect our children to adulthood. Let's remember that 900,000 teenagers sell drugs, but not alcohol or tobacco, and alcohol and tobacco are regulated and controlled. LEAP does not condone or encourage drug use, but we do know that the the three-decade-plus war on prohibition is a total policy failure and that it's doing much more harm than good. LEAP does believe that the only way we can break the chain of kids starting to use drugs is total legalization, regulation of production, and control of the distribution of these substances is the way forward. Legalization will remove the criminal element and make it more difficult for kids to have access for drugs. It is up to us to ask tough questions of our elected officials and listen carefully to their answers. It's time for a change. Let's work together for a better future for ourselves and our children. This is Terry Nelson at www.leap.cc signing off. Poppygate.
bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Opium poppy planting season is now underway in Afghanistan. Poppies are planted in the fall. The tiny seeds are broadcast on prepared soil and bloom the following spring. In 2006, 3 million Afghanis cultivated opium poppy, and the record-smashing, completely illegal harvest produced 6,700 tons of opium, enough opium to make 670 tons of pure number 4 heroin, 8.5 billion individual doses. That's enough black market heroin to supply 130% of this year's total global demand and firmly establishes Afghanistan's role as the world's preeminent narcotics-producing state. Under the willfully blind eyes of the Western political elite, Afghan heroin production has surged since the U.S. 2001 invasion to levels without global precedent in the post-World War II era. Despite officiating as America's drug war commander-in-chief, President George W. Bush has hitched America's wagon to a virtual monopoly of black market narcotics manufacture and sale. Reza Gorbachev once wrote, Hypocrisy, the lie, is the true sister of evil, intolerance, and cruelty. Sure sounds like Poppygate to yours truly. Glenn Greenway, reporting for the Drug Truth Network. This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Corrupt Cop Story for the Drug Truth Network. This week we're going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a federal civil rights lawsuit filed by the husband of an exotic dancer is shining a light on some sordid business involving a pair of Tulsa police officers. The lawsuit was filed by Shannon Coyle, the husband of dancer Crystal Gar. Coyle was arrested on drug charges last year by Officer Travis Ludwig after Coyle filed an internal affairs complaint against Ludwig because Ludwig was sleeping with Gar. Coyle was arrested on drug charges last year by Officer Travis Ludwig after he filed an internal affairs complaint against Ludwig because Ludwig was sleeping with Gar, Coyle's wife. Coyle was arrested first on marijuana possession charges, then again on methamphetamine and paraphernalia charges in raids led by Ludwig. When Coyle found out Ludwig was, Ludwig was sleeping with his wife, he text-messaged him, warning him to stay away. Ludwig then took those messages to a deputy prosecutor who okayed another arrest for Coyle, this time for intimidating a witness, Ludwig. All the charges were dropped once officials became aware of the affair, and Ludwig has been disciplined by the department, but he still faces Coyle's lawsuit. So does Officer Israel Rodriguez, whom Coyle also accuses of sleeping with his wife. Ludwig and Gar currently live together, although she remains married to Coyle, the father of her four children. Oh, by the way, the deputy prosecutor who okayed Coyle's third arrest, she also had been sleeping with the busy Ludwig. Read all about it. This Oklahoma law enforcement patent place in the Tulsa world, which has in-depth coverage and a handy chart with all the players. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories this week. Check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. And be sure to check out our new speakeasy on the website where you can join us in blogging about the drug war and how to end drug prohibition. The Justice Department released a new report on drug use by prison inmates this week. They found that in 2004, a large number of prisoners had been using drugs in the month prior to their offense. Somewhat fewer were under the influence of drugs at the time of their offense. 
The proportions were similar to those found the last time the department did this survey in 1997. The biggest difference is that in their previous report, the feds looked at substance abuse and crime, reporting on alcohol in addition to other drugs. The key phrase to remember, alcohol and other drugs. The artificial distinction that we used to make between alcohol on the one hand and drugs on the other is misleading and has for the most part been abandoned among those in public health. Unfortunately, law enforcement has yet to catch up, at least at the highest levels. Any cop on the street knows that alcohol is a drug, and a dangerous drug at that. People involved in criminal justice research know that, too. Unfortunately, researchers at the Justice Department don't get to choose what makes it into print. Research on substance abuse and its connection to crime is important for both public health and public safety. The feds dangerously mislead the public and policymakers by excluding alcohol from their analysis and focusing only on illegal drugs. The foundation of prohibition lies on such hypocrisy. By revealing the lies, it crumbles into dust. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Man, are we out of time. And as always, I remind you, because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guthy, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth, the show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>